sweet of him. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. This isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. That UFO podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. The open beta strives to put the power of studio quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Features include HD video recording, studio quality sound, chat and footnotes. All running right from your browser so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. This is a new show, this is your recap show. It's in March but it's for February, something that when I put out the the Google survey a couple of months ago, people asked for a recap show of the interviews so they could hear stuff that maybe they weren't too sure if they wanted to listen to in full or not and give them a little bit of a taster of it. So what I've done is put a highlight show of some of the best clips from February together for you here as well. And if you haven't heard it yet, which it doesn't come out till the 7th of March, so you should get this early if you're listening to it before then, I've also put a clip of the new Diana Pasulka interview in this show as well. You might have heard it on Patreon, Apple, Spotify Premium if you're a paid subscriber. If not, it's only a couple more days till it's released on the 7th of March, but you can hear an exclusive clip from that interview in this show as well. What you're going to hear first is John Ramirez talking about the hitchhiker effect and military bases potentially involved in the UK regarding the UFO subject. We'll then hear some clips from Tim McMillan from his two-parter, one on the upcoming UFO office, then his most compelling UFO video that he has seen. Also, Kevin Randall will discuss the details of the Leveland, Texas case from 1957. And then finally, at the end of the pod, you'll hear that clip from Diana Pasulka talking about the Invisibles, her her character Tyler D, of course, based on a real-life person. And it was a really interesting interview, a little clip in there for you that if you want to go and listen to that in full, you can check it out now, ad-free and early on Patreon, etc. Otherwise, it's going to be out in a few days on the free feeds, folks. lot to look forward to. I hope you enjoy this new format. Please get in touch and let me know what you think. Enjoy the show. Um, the next part, again, you say you're not a, a physicist necessarily, but... Jordan wants to know, is there evidence to suggest that the hitchhiker effect is related to quantum entanglement? I don't know. Um, Boy, that's a good question for a real physicist. I I have not resolved in my head what causes the hitchhiker effect, other than it has something to do with the initial exposure. And I cannot explain how you can go to Skinwalker Ranch in Utah and bring that effect back home to Washington, D.C., as was uh, described in the Skinwalkers at the Pentagon book. I don't know how that happens. 
it's an it's a very intriguing and incredible part of the phenomenon. Uh, but as you say, it's one of the lesser understood, lesser lesser known aspects. And I think, given the the personal nature of it as well, it really is up to the individual to come out and and tell their story. And and again, that that relies on evidence or lack thereof, doesn't it? Um, George Knapp himself shared on on my podcast his own experience to an extent, uh, and he mentioned his wife was part of that. But obviously, for those reasons, he, he stopped short of going into detail because it affects someone else like his wife, and you, you can appreciate that that yeah. relationship. Yeah. Um, next questions from Ash, who ran the UFO Minicon last year in Preston that I attended. That was a lot of fun. Um, Ash says, in your recent presentation you gave on the Project Unity YouTube channel, you mentioned the importance of the RAF Flying Dales radar oh, station yes. in the UK. Um, they can see a can of Coke 3,000 miles away. Are you aware or able to comment on any other UK-based infrastructure or bases that are also worthy of closer scrutiny when it comes to their potential involvement with the UAP topic? Well, I know that the paved pause radar in the US has detected craft. And I know that the Filingdale's radar is of a similar model to the U.S. PAVE Paul's radar. So that's the association between the two. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's anything that the uh, Ministry of Defense might have. Uh, that's a good question for uh, Baroness Goldie. She might know, <laughs> but I don't. I don't know what else the U.K. might have uh, that can detect craft at long ranges like that, especially over the poles, over the Arctic Circle. In your opinion, John, let me ask on that from, from a UK point of view. Why do you think, as someone who's clearly not from the UK, that the UK government and the UK forces don't seem to have anywhere near the interest that the United States has in this subject and topic? So they say. Well, uh, yeah. So they say. So I think in the US, uh, because Roswell was a an American incident happening on US soil, and because the original Arnold sighting uh, was in U.S. airspace, I believe the U.S. has um, taken a greater interest in it. But other countries have also had these types of encounters, officially through military encounters. But I think in the U.K., I don't know why they do not want to talk about it. They kind of dismiss it. Maybe they're just following our lead and waiting to see what we do. But um, I find that really interesting that there isn't a more open dialogue uh, by the UK government on this phenomena. Having said that, I have interfaced in my career uh, with Ministry of Defense analysts who are also studying uh, not UAPs or anything like that, but studying the same radars that I studied uh, that have the capability of detecting UAPs, but that's never that has never come up in our conversations at all back then. Hopefully, so, something that changes in the in the coming months, let alone years, and from a UK point of view. Yes, and hopefully, something me and my colleagues, as part of UAP Media, if people in the UK want to check up on that, um, yes. can help with. For the for the moment, keeping things a little bit more terrestrial, uh, you mentioned that compartment compartmentalization. 
uh, and the US government particularly, which happens in all governments. And I want to get your thoughts on the, the upcoming UFO office, because I think last time we spoke, it was on the Gillibrand Amendment and what could possibly happen, things coming from that. We obviously know the amendment went through with the proviso at the end of the day. We're going to have a legitimate UFO office and in the background right now, that's getting put together. What do you know right now that's happening in the background in terms of this office and, and what are your thoughts on it? Sure. Yeah. To the best of my knowledge, uh, the office that has uh, has been put together already that essentially uh, you know, a lot of the concerns that maybe people expressed back in November that um, the office that the or the Undersecretary for Intelligence announced abruptly before the amendment ever passed that this was going to become it. Uh, that is that exists, and I believe that that is going to at this point be the office that that fulfills the requirements that were established through the legislation. Uh, there, you know, other people have told me that there is uh, significant potential for a parallel office to be run by the director of national intelligence. And, and I think if you really get into the, the nitty gritty of that bill, uh, it absolutely ambiguously infers that that's something that's going to be needed because Again, going back to this bureaucracy, the DOD and ODNI are separate entities. <laughs> so they're separate deals. So if you're going to work in concert with ODNI, ODNI has to have some kind of official body in place to work with. So you, you've got to have these Lego pieces fit together. So I, I certainly believe that there's going to be uh, a joint ODNI effort, but that I believe is still in the works. The one that the DOD has been kind of mandated uh, is up. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, I were, you know, who is is running that office and who's involved in that office? Uh, I think that, uh, you, you know, you've heard some people like Christopher Mellon and Lou Elizondo express concerns about who's going to be involved with that. And I think that those concerns are are founded <laughs> uh, based on what I know. I, I think uh just uh, you know, looking at the staff summary sheet of who's involved in that office, um, you know, I, I wouldn't. Uh, some I know, some I don't know, uh, and and some I know have been antagonistic towards the topic. So it's kind of like, oh my god, you know, do you want, uh, you know, do do you want the guy who absolutely hates your football team to be your quarterback on your team, <laughs> you know, type deal? And so there's some concerns there. Uh, at the same time, it's still very early on. And I think most importantly it, that Congress has really expressed, well, uh, regardless of what it looks like right now or regardless of the product, uh, there's going to be expectations met by lawmakers. So I think it's still a fluid process. I think after you have your first kind of uh, uh, your first briefings and your first when they, they meet with uh, the Armed Services Committee or the Intel's Committee and give them kind of an overview of the last three months or six months, whatever they're doing. Um, you know, obviously questions will be asked. It'll be interesting to see how this office changes or morphs based on is who they have in place right now currently going to produce the results that Congress wants to see. What are some of the pros and cons of the, the upcoming UFO office that we're, we're hoping to get that you can see? Is there anything you can think, starting with the pros first, what are, what are some of the best results that could come from it? I think the, the you know, obviously 
the biggest pros here for that, and it was really surprising when, when I saw that come out, is because, uh, you know, uh, and a lot of people maybe haven't really appreciated the fact that this was the first time in American history that you had uh, you had Congress openly legislating the UFO topic. You know, that's never happened before. Uh, Blue Book, you look at that. Blue Book was an eternal uh, program started by the Air Force. They managed it themselves. You know, they may have provided results to the public, but but at no point in time were they mandated by Congress. They weren't mandated by law to do anything. They could close it whenever the heck they wanted to, which they did. Whereas in this one now, this is something that's mandated by law. So the way this system is supposed to work is that your lawmakers are elected by the people and they're supposed to express the will of the people onto the government services. And in this instance, they have expressed the will that this is a, this is a situation or issue that they want to see taken seriously. They want to see resources allocated and dedicated to this. And so for the first time, you, you've got a government that cannot um, deny or diminish how much work they're putting into it because they're legally mandated to be putting this work into it. So there is this line of uh, accountability now. And so if they're saying, oh, we're not doing this or we're not doing that, or no, we don't take UFO reports or we don't look into them, you're like, well, then you're breaking the law. And you have your lawmakers there who are supposed to hold them accountable for that. And so I think the fact that we're seeing the UFO topic put into law and legislation, that's very, very significant. And it's very significant for what's the level of accountability and what we'll see ultimately that's produced. Uh, cons wise, I think that uh, you know, they can do an absolutely expert job inside of this and they can solve lots of mysteries and uh, they can hold within their grasp uh, just irrefutable evidence that this, what this represents, uh, you know, and if it so long as it represents uh, what it appears to represent currently, which is inherently a demonstration of vulnerabilities to American uh, and other countries, national defense, that's something that is going to be inherently classified. <laughs> it's going to be in here safeguarded as much as people want to uh, believe or think that, uh, you know, if they, especially if they knew this was something that wasn't human, that that would be immediately shared with the world. And we would all, you know, this would be this great breakthrough. That's not how the defense world thinks. That's not what they're paid to do. And from them, they view it from a defense standpoint. And if they have something that they have no defense against, that's not something we're ever going to hear about. And that's, so that's very difficult. And I've always said, as long as it remains in the national security world solely, um, it's going to be very hard to get that uh, that information that people really want to see out there, the information that they can show to other people and say, look, here you go. This is irrefutable evidence that I'm not crazy. What I saw is what I saw. This is not just drones, balloons, birds and swamp gas. Uh that's that's going to be a hard ticket to get out of of the defense world until uh, it's something that where they they've mitigated that risk or or they have determined that it is not a risk it's not a threat and I'm I'm not certain that that has uh, you know, I have no evidence that that has ever been achieved that that they've ever conclusively ruled out in light of comments that they have made. Um, 
in public over decades where they said, I think even the UK government, that's their stance is uh, much like Blue Book that uh, UFOs don't pose a threat to national security. Okay, cool. Well, what are they? You know, birds don't pose a threat to national security either, <laughs> but but I could read a book about them. So what are they? Um, I would say that that uh, that's probably that that alone has is probably a a lie from governments when they say that it doesn't represent not that it does represent a threat, but rather that they have conclusively determined that it there isn't threat potential there, and so. Yeah, it's it's an interesting slope as long as it remains there in the DOD. And, uh, you know, even if the, the people that may be in place now, if they're antagonistic towards the UFO topic, uh, you know, the ones I know, you trust that they're still defense professionals, they're going to handle it like defense professionals. And I think that's a concern for the public and the transparency side of things. I am delighted to welcome a new sponsor to the podcast, VinoVest. As you all know, I've got a young family and I'm always looking at ways I can save and invest for the future. Fine wine has long been a cornerstone of wealth generation and preservation. The problem? Historically, it's been reserved for the ultra-wealthy. VinoVest is changing that. VinoVest is a platform allowing investors to own 100% of their portfolio and easily buy, sell or drink from their collection of fine wines. After missing out on all those next big things to invest in, I'm always looking for what is the next big player in the industry. I was amazed at how easy it was to get started in diversifying your investment portfolio. Wine has one-third the volatility of the stock market and has outperformed the global equities market over the past 30 years with 10.6% annualised returns, proving that the returns can be as robust as your favourite red. VinoVest makes it easy to acquire new investments, equipped with a team of world-class sommeliers who evaluate wine and determine which ones will gain value over time. You own the wines in your portfolio outright. You can buy, sell and even drink them whenever you want. Enjoy historical returns, direct ownership of world-class wines, portfolio diversity and robust recession resistance. Go to zen.ai forward slash that UFO pod zero. That's the number zero. The link is also in the description to receive two months of fee free investing. That's two months of fee free investing. It's time to start investing with VinoVest today. Check that out. Tim, listener questions. We've got a good range of stuff here. Um, I tend not to go over them with the guests beforehand either, although we, we touched on one or two that it came up in the short break we had um first off i've got jason from los angeles jason says hi fellas is there a video online of a uap or alien for example skinny bob that tim finds most compelling or something you think everyone should look at um that's a good question um yeah i I don't i don't i can't say that i can think of any uh entities (laughs) videos that i've ever seen and been like oh wow that's got to be real so uh i think uh Skinny Bob's, Skinny Bob's fun, man. I hope Skinny Bob's real, but uh, I can't necessarily say there's there's any. I even have any anecdotal evidence that's real. I think the in terms of videos, the the one that always jumps out to me um, is the Nellis Range video that was filmed in the early 1990s, and, and we actually have that on. Uh, it's one of it's one of it may be the only. UAP video that we have on our debrief uh, YouTube channel. And it is one that we have on there. That one's always been very interesting to me because it's, uh, you know, it's about 
20 plus minutes of video and it's taken from two different uh, it's taken by two different cameras and it's taken from two different time intervals but i think uh you know unlike we see with the even like the nimitz or the go fast videos these types of things those those videos have much more compelling uh, you know eyewitness testimony because you have the the pilots and so in this instance we don't have that but uh that one's always been intriguing to me because on top of the fact that you can't really identify what the object is it also appears it moves erratically that it doesn't move consistent with what we would see in the aerodynamics of, of normal aircraft or drones. And, uh, you know, because it was taken in the early 1990s, um, you know, we have to look at, you know, where, where's the state of drone technology in anyway, you know, there, there is potential that, uh, it, uh, some of the movements could look like a quadcopter because it moves parallel. You know, it, it kind of does these weird zigzagging uh, patterns that we've heard people like Ryan Graves uh, talk about with the Roosevelt incidences. But again, we're talking early 90s. So, you know, obviously there is drone technology that exists there. But even today, when you look at quadcopters, um, you know, there's very limited battery range. And so this video is taken over about an hour time frame. And so, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that that's one of the ones. Uh, it is one of the ones that, unfortunately, not a whole lot. I, I've tried. There's not a whole lot I can get on it because of the time frame. And, and you know, I did talk to some people who had worked on these recent events, so the, the 2004 to 2021. You know, the, the stuff that went into the preliminary report. And I asked. I have asked about that video. And. Uh, I was told it was not one of the ones that was investigated by a tip or the task force or anything like that. But I was told it is authentic. It is real. I said, no, no, it's real. Uh, they didn't go past what made them say that they didn't say much more than that, but they said that it, it was real. And so it's an interesting one. It's an interesting one to me. And I think just because a lot of the stuff you see there um, doesn't look normal <laughs> you know it's not normal i think uh some of the some of the ones that have recently come out but not made have, have not generated a lot of attention and i won't say that they what you see in them is overly impressive but uh the video that was released a couple months ago the, the rubber duck one um you know i think there was another a10 warthog which wasn't you know I think that could be anything uh, that one's not nearly impressive, but I think where they are coming from are interesting to me. They're very, very interesting because there's uh, very little doubt in my mind that uh, those videos were captured by government sensor systems and, and, and national guard aircraft. Actually, I'm very familiar with the aircraft filming them and that type of systems up there. So the fact that that occurred, um, the fact of what they're recorded on are intriguing to me. Those, those are intriguing, but I won't say that what you're seeing in there, at least for me at a lot of times, uh, I don't see anything that's like earth shattering, but the fact that, that where they're coming from, the provenance of that, that that's intriguing to me. Well, that passion and drive is is taking you to write about Leveland, which we're, of course, going to talk about, and I'd like to do that now. Um, the events of Leveland, uh, West Texas, I believe, it was November 1957. Can you tell us a little bit, if you remember, when you first heard about this particular event? It's always event? been an interest of mine because of the nature of the, of the, of the sightings. It was uh, people at a number of 
different locations, uh, independently reporting to the sheriff this thing had come close to the ground or landed on the ground near the car, installed the engine and put out the headlights and that sort of thing. And, and looking at that whole group of sightings in November of 1957. So I've been interested in it for a long time. It was only recently that um, I, I began to understand the importance of it. Uh, a fellow named Don Berlinson, who lives in Roswell, Roswell being three hours by car from Leveland. Leveland, for those of you who want to look on a map, is right near Lubbock, Texas, in the panhandle of Texas. So if you can't find Leveland, just go a little bit west of, of Lubbock, and, and that's where Leveland is. Had um, interviewed the widow of the sheriff back in um, around the year 2000, and she told him some things that were very interesting to me and kind of inspired me to look a little bit deeper into it. One of the things I discovered is if you look at the Air Force file, the Project Blue Book file on Leveland, they interview the sheriff, whose name is Weir Clem, a name I positively hate. I wish it was something like Tom Collins or, well, Jim Beam, for that matter, or James Bond, some good, good name, not Weir Clem. But he um, had told the Air Force, according to their file, well, he eventually was interested enough because there had been enough sightings been reported to him that they were going to go out and look for it. And he saw the object in the distance. He said it was just a streak of light in sight for two seconds. That's what it says in the Air Force file. I found documentation printed in newspapers prior to the Air Force investigation where he was talking about seeing a oval-shaped object that was bright red. And then later on, a fellow named Don Berliner, yes, there's a lot of Dons in this conversation. Don Berliner in the mid-1970s talked to the sheriff, talked to Sheriff Clem. And Clem, again, said that he'd seen the object. So we've got him saying it prior to the Air Force investigation and then somewhat later after the Air Force had written down what he had to say. The other thing that came out, and we're back to Don Berlinson now, he learned that the mechanic for the sheriff's department was still alive in, in 2000 and interviewed him and said that the sheriff had come into the shop and wanted his car checked out the next day. The only reason the sheriff would have had his car checked out the next day is if he'd gotten close enough to the object that it stalled it. So we have documentation saying get close enough to it to see an object. And then we have information that says his car was stalled. Now, what, be, what makes this even more important than some of the other sightings of in that short time frame of two and a half hours in, in Leveland is that he was in sort of a mini convoy. He was in one of the sheriff's department car with a deputy. Behind him was a state police car. I think it's I think then it was still it was called the department, uh, the Texas Department of Public Safety. That's what it was when I lived there in the 1960s, and I think it was that in 1957. So now you have state police involved, and behind, behind them was a third car with Air Force officers in it. This tells me that they got close enough that their cars were stalled, and that tells me the Air Force officers observed the phenomenon of the car engines being stalled and the object, the bright red glowing object being close enough that they could see what it was. But there's nothing in the Air Force file that talks about an investigation or an interrogation of the Air Force officers involved. All we have are six different interviews conducted um, two or three days later by a staff sergeant that came down from Colorado Springs and um, interviewed the sheriff, a couple of the witnesses, and uh, let it go at that. Didn't do a comprehensive investigation. That was it. Now, it Years later, many years later, I was able to find the names of many, many people who were involved based not only on uh, what the Air Force report said, the Air Force documents say, 
but the newspaper files that we could go through and we'd find witnesses in there that uh, were interviewed. The um, APRO Bulletin, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, which was a civilian organization, was involved in the investigation in 1957, as was the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, which is also a civilian organization based in Washington, D.C. They had one of their investigators out there talking to people. So looking at all these documents created at that time, we were able to find the names of many, many other people who were involved. The sheriff said that uh, he had received dozens of phone calls about this, which suggests additional witnesses as well. So it's a, it's a case with many, many witnesses at independent locations reporting the same phenomenon. The sheriff also, at least according to the, 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 the wife, the widow, said that there had been landing traces on a, on a ranch outside of town. I think it was north of town. Burlinson went there and interviewed the, the widow of the rancher, but the rancher's daughter as well. And the rancher and the daughter went out and saw the burned area, as did the sheriff. So now we have landing traces on the ground, which had they been researched properly in 1957, might have presented us with some very interesting data. We know that it interacted with the environment by stalling the car engines and feeling, uh, filling radios with static and putting out the headlights. And when the object left, left and the cars could be restarted, there was only one case where the guy said the car started spontaneously, but the cars could be started. So they, they stopped working at the close approach of the UFO and began working again when the UFO was gone. So we've got an interaction with the environment and we have many independent witnesses. Think of the data we have could, have could have collected at that time had NICAP not got involved in, with the Air Force in an argument over the number of witnesses. So the Air Force successfully diverted the conversation from what happened to how many witnesses there really were. You talked about ufologists. A good time to bring up this question <laughs> then because it was my next one. Um, I've seen you mention in an interview that you, you feel there's three types of ufologists. Those interested from a young age through experiences or media exposure, believing in the ET hypothesis or ETH. Or you've got those who believe in the more consciousness-based spiritual side of the, the phenomenon. Some mm -hmm. would call it the woo. I know that's almost offensive now to some, depending on what they believe in. And there's a third type, which are the invisibles. And this would be the group, I'm guessing, like your your Jacks and your mm -hmm. your Gary Nolans who do the work quietly in the background with almost little to no social presence or, you know, clamber for media attention. In that group, uh, one of those would be with Tyler D in your book, uh, which you named after Tyler Durden from Fight Club. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about Tyler? And obviously in the last, what, six months to a year, what we found out online through the Bledsoe's, Ryan Bledsoe, Tyler's real identity as well. Yeah, so um, I let if Tyler wants to reveal his identity, I let him do it, just like if James wanted to, he did. Um, but so Tyler's part of a group who is who I found to be working on this topic in a in a completely cons constrained way. When I say constrained. Their lives are not like my life or norm, a normal person's life. It, they are not like Gary Nolan. Okay. So, you know, Gary does his research and he is what I'm going to be calling this at the um, conference that's coming up. I'm going to be calling it the visible college, not the invisible college, The there is a visible college. And so Gary would be one, a member of that, but he's not a member of fight club because within fight club, if you remember that movie, you know, you don't talk about it. So what I found was that a lot of the people who would be like, let's put it this way. 
in the space program itself, if you talk to people who say work at NASA or work at the various other space agencies, they're not going to actually know the the history of the space program, which is pretty weird, right? So you have Jack Parsons and people like that. They won't know who that is, even though he, you know, Jet Propulsion Laboratory came out of his work, right? So, so that's Fight Club because they don't talk about it. Some of them don't even know about it, but they're still doing this. It's so compartmentalized that they'll do this, this portion of the work, but they, their boss doesn't even know what they do. So, so yeah, so I met Tyler and Tyler was not a normal person at all. <laughs> yeah. Pretty amazing person. What What's the, the reason behind that secrecy? And in, in a day and age where you can find almost everyone and everything online, what's the, 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 the benefits to keeping work like that kept so secretive? Yeah. So that's one thing that surprised me. I'm glad you brought that up. Apparently, you can't find everything and everyone online. So there are, you know, we tend to think that, you know, if somebody's not, doesn't have a Google presence or a digital presence that they're, you know, they're not really doing work that's out there. That's absolutely not the case. So I found that a lot of information and a lot of work that's being done is completely being done. And it's probably the most innovative that's being done, but it won't be on, um, it won't be on Twitter. It won't be on Google. You know, you're not going to find it. Um, Why? There are people that, do you control what we see on these platforms? It's just a fact. So Tyler, so uh, here's an example. Um, I've been, I've had things happen to my social media accounts, but also my university account a few times. And on one of these times, some people had like leaked out some pictures of Tyler. And immediately I saw some of those pictures get, taken off. I don't know who was taking them off, but I do know that sometimes information with respect to Tyler would be taken off the internet and it would be through his work. They would take it off. And again, do you feel people like like Tyler again? I won't say the name because it was out there. Ryan Bledsoe put it online and if that's a discussion that Tyler wants to come out and have, then they can certainly do that. I'll give him that respect. Do these people feel that by doing this work in a much more quiet and you know solitary way they stay away from those alphabet agencies or are they still getting that same pressure and and surveillance almost from those that is all for this week's show thank you very much for listening please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform you can like retweet and subscribe that would all be very much appreciated the shows are being uploaded onto youtube as we speak more and more you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that ufo podcast to access shows ad free as well please get in touch on twitter facebook instagram that ufo podcast of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Folk. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little Meditative game of 
stayed full on meta. I can't imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz.